Hello and welcome to the Curiosity Conversation. So today on the Curiosity Conversation, I'm joined by Dr Luke Gartland from the School of Art History, whose research and teaching concerns modern visual practices in the global 19th century, particularly with regard to histories and theories of photography. And Luke is pursuing a research project at the moment which concerns early photography in St Andrews within the context of local engagements in empire and global exchange, which we touch on in this podcast. Okay, well, thank you so much, uh, Luke, for coming along to record the Curiosity Conversation with me today. It's fantastic to have you here. No, it's absolutely a pleasure to be here, Ailey. I'm delighted to be invited. I'm so excited to talk all about the uh, history of photography and early photography and its connection to St Andrews, because I think it's maybe something that people aren't particularly aware of when they come to St Andrews, um, that actually it's it was really the, the home of early photography. Um, I wondered whether you might be able to give us a bit of a a very short introduction to the to the sort of connection of St Andrews, the the town, to the history of photography. Sure. Um, well, St Andrews and photography goes back to the very beginnings of of the medium. Um, so the particular connection, which was really important, was uh, a former principal of the university by the name of David Brewster. So he was um, he came to St Andrews in 1838. And photography was sort of announced to the world the following year. So he's coming to St Andrews and the beginnings of the technology being announced to the world in Paris um, and in England um, coincided with his coming. And he was uh, someone very interested in optics. He was known at the time as a sort of a natural philosopher, what we now call a scientist. Um, But he was interested in optics. Um, He was responsible for inventing the kaleidoscope for his children to entertain them. Um, And it was through his networks with lots of other figures, scientists around Europe, um, and in particular with um, the inventor of an early process by the name of Talbot, with whom he was friends, um, that he heard early through correspondence about photography and brought photography to St Andrews. Um, So, indeed, photography was being practised by a small circle of local figures, um, men about town um, and a few women as well um, who are slowly emerging, um, and um, they were beginning to kind of experiment with this technology around town, even before Edinburgh or London. So... St Andrews is seen accordingly um, by those in the field as really the first town in the world that was photographed as a sort of project. So when I first came to St Andrews, as someone sort of coming for a job looking for a history of photography position, I looked at the ruins and went, oh my, like they actually exist. They're not actually photographs. They, you know, they're still there. And it's a very strange experience, I think, to look at these early photographs and then Um, visit St Andrews. Um, I think if you have, you know, as a tourist, if you have a good look or, you know, if you've got observant eyes, you'll notice a few things around the town that are easily missed perhaps. So um, on Market Street, for example, what's now the Career Centre for for students has a blue plaque in front of it. 
Um, and that's to a man named Thomas Roger, who took up photography when he was in his mid-teens um, and became the first commercial photographer in St Andrews. Um, so he opened a studio in 1849 in what is now the Careers Building. And if you have a good look at the Careers Building, you might know, some of you as you walked past this morning, um, that it's kind of got an unusual roof. And that's because originally it was a glass roof for the studio to let light in. Over on South Street, there is a building which is now the Adamson, which is where John Adamson lived. And he was an, a doctor and an amateur photographer, one of the first in this sort of early circle. Um, and because he was a doctor, as his sort of profession, it allowed him kind of access into people's homes around town and he was very well known. Um, and he photographed many of these people as his sort of hobby on the side. One of the things I think is interesting about St Andrews is that, you know, at the time in the 19th century and right up, you know, you could argue to now, it was a small community with a group of individuals who were very closely linked to one another. And photography was a way of bringing people together. It was a, a pastime, a, a point of interest. Um, and so many of the photographs in the archives of St Andrews are not just photographs of these figures who we have forgotten, but the albums themselves are family albums, and they were collected by these families um, as ways of remembering and thinking about the community that they lived in and were brought up in. And so having those albums today in the university is also, I think, a sign of how much the community around St Andrews has, um, has donated to the town over the years and a sort of sense in which these albums, um, which are still being donated right up until this day, um, are being um, memorialised as part of the town and a five month generally in Scotland. So I suppose one of the things that really fascinated me about photography and the study of photography is that it's not just about photography. It's across all sorts of fields. So it's a field that a lot of different individuals and um, and disciplines and fields really feel invested in, whether it's anthropology, whether it's art history, whether it's cultural studies, English, um, and indeed um, individuals on the street who have photographs with them on their phones and so on. So I think it is something that a lot of people feel personally invested in one way or another, whether or not they take photographs or not. I think there's a sense that a photograph is, you know, when the house is burning down, you take the family album. Absolutely, you're completely right. And I, I think, like you say, it's fascinating, actually, that the medium of photography, although we might, in our in our mind's eye, when we think of the early days of photography, think of very austere people in studio setups and very severe facial expressions. The fact that they are they are all family albums, and you know, it, it's very much. You know, we we aim to do the same things with photography today as 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 people you know in in that early time did too, and I think the, my favourite thing about uh, looking at the sort of the the early archive of uh, photographs of the town is some things like you say the cathedral ruins remain relatively unchanged, but then there will be just small details. <laughs> Yeah. that will remind you that it's not the 21st century, it's, it's the 19th century, whether it's the fisher fisherwomen on North Street or whatever it might be. It's just, in many ways, it, it's so familiar, mm. but yet also worlds apart. Exactly. Um, you know, and I think 
One of the things I think that um, some scholars have spoken about photography is that it's not a medium which necessarily can edit out things, the kind of nitty-gritty of the street. It's not like a painter who decides what to include or what not to include. Talbot, the sort of inventor of this process known as um, the calotype process, this early photographic process, he, he mentioned that in his early photographs of England, that I hadn't intended this to be there, and it's only when I produced the photograph I realised there was this detail. So he kind of celebrated this accidental or incidental inclusion in the photograph. Um, and um, we still, of course, have many of those details um, in the photographs of St Andrews. You know, when it comes to photographing individuals or portraits, one thing that's really important to sort of think about is that many people had never done this before. They, you know, they were learning on the go, both the photographer and the early sitters what actually would be the conventions around having a portrait taken. Many people will know about how long the exposure time took and that figures had to be clamped and kept very still for the period of the exposure time. But really, you know, they were also sort of working out actually what are the protocols around having a photograph taken? How do I make a photograph look quote unquote natural? So for example, many of the very earliest photographs are taken um, outdoors. Um, because the light conditions indoor were just not good enough. The very earliest photographs are taken with a, a, a sheet hung up on a clothesline as a backdrop to kind of intensify the lighting conditions. And these figures are often kind of squinting because they have to look directly into sunlight. And of course it's difficult to kind of look like you're enjoying yourself when you're being told to sort of sit there and, you know, in the light conditions of St Andrews, looking into the sun, and to be held, you know, still for 30 seconds. Um, because it was so early in St Andrews as well, there was a lot of frustration. So we're not in the stage in this early period of the of what will happen, which is the industrialisation of photography, the mass production of dry plates and of um, the production of photographs and of cameras and so on. In this very early period, if you didn't have the chemicals, you had to make them. You had to go to the local chemist and say, I want this. And so, of course, they were inconsistent in the quality of what they were making. And this resulted in a lot of failure in what was produced. Um, and so sometimes we can look at these very early photographs that survive today and they're very faded and they're, they're kind of falling apart. Um, and it is true that many of these early photographs, um, because the chemicals are still reacting to light, to this day, almost 200 years later, they will eventually disappear. And I think that gives us a real sense of the, um, it gives them a certain preciousness to understand not just how rare they were, not just the circumstances in which they were taken, but a sense also that um, they will not survive forever. We can digitise them, you know, we can have copies and, and have them um, perpetuated in other forms. What we're mainly talking about here and what St Andrews was famous for was what was called, um, were works on paper. Um, the calotype process was a, a process on paper involving a negative effectively, which is why it will become um, in many senses the, the early process that will become photography with a negative and being able to produce many positive prints from that negative. There was a rifle process um, in Paris 
from a man called Louis Daguerre, known as the Daguerreotype. And it, however, is a single metal image. So it is not reproducible. There is no negative. What you have is this metallic shining sheet, which is almost like a mirror. And if you move it around in your hand to the right angle, you finally get to see the image. And so there was this great competition between the daguerreotype and the calotype, but they're very different as sort of objects and very aesthetically different. The calotypes are sort of like looking through mist. It's absolutely fascinating. And I think that bit about just the experimentation and the innovation, you know, one of the things that we have on display at the Wardlaw Museum is um, a lenticular stereoscope, which is also obviously connected to our friend David Brewster. I wonder if you could tell us about uh, stereographs for those who might be interested, because I also think that stereographs are remarkably ahead of their time in in many ways. Um, absolutely. Um, you know, Brewster claimed to have invented the stereograph, but he really didn't. It was a man by the name of Wheatstone. And you might think that these are sort of technologies, photography and stereography, um, that went hand in hand. They, it's more likely to kind of think about them as occurring at the same time. They, they're quite distinct sort of technologies and, and traditions around optics and vision. And so the bringing of them together into stereographic photography was took a little time. And Brewster was an important figure in the kind of bringing of the two technologies together. So basically you have these two images side to side, side by side, that almost look identical, but they're taken from very slightly different angles. So what you needed was a camera. Um, in many cases with two lenses, side by side, mimicking, as it were, the position of the eyes and the human body. And you take a photograph of an object, preferably close up in the middle, so that you get a slightly different angle of view of this object. Um, and then when you take that, those two photographs side by side and you put them into this contraption known as a stereoscope and put your eyes up and look through it and adjust it to get the focal length right, it will create this sort of this this sort of sort of three dimensional effect. People were uh, were rather surprised by this effect. Indeed, you give this to technology to students today, and they're still kind of like very surprised. It is a really kind of jarring experience necessarily to realise that in the nineteenth century this was a extremely popular technology. Um, so this was in the late 1840s into the early 1850s when Brewster um, with his stereoscope popularised and made more portable this technology. And then it went to the United States and a man called Holmes created an even simpler model um, that took off in the United States. And by the turn of the century, um, there were huge companies selling millions of stereographs in box sets. So you could buy a box set of a visit to Rome and you could take them out and you would be given a kind of guided tour as a sort of ersatz visual tourist, as Holmes put it, from your living room of a trip through Rome. And there'd be a map with it and you could kind of put the two together and go, all oh, right, that's where we are and so on. And so the 19th century was really a century obsessed with vision and with 
different sorts of technologically mediated vision, technologies which in a sense they wanted to kind of pretend weren't there, right? So there's a sort of sense in which I'm not looking at a stereographic photograph. I'm looking at, I'm being transported to the Nile, to the pyramids, to St Andrews, to wherever it might be as a stereograph. It's so funny actually because when you when you speak about um you know being being transported and that desire to be somewhere else and see somewhere else but but the the idea that you have actually gone there it absolutely tracks through sort of developments in augmented and virtual reality and absolutely it's it's all there isn't it and interest yeah yeah it's it's just one of those things it, the desire has obviously always always been the same in some ways yeah and I, I think it's particularly interesting towards the Wardwell Museum and around museums in general how quickly these have become understood as um, ways of, of creating interaction with visitors um, that many of these forms of interaction are um, in one way or another based around photography or around 3D technologies um, and so on and that again I think tracks for example in the case of St Andrews to the fact that John Adamson who I mentioned earlier as one of the as a doctor and as a um, amateur photographer um, was um, one of the very first curators of 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 the museum at St Andrews right so he's very quickly was you know his job became collecting of fossils and all sorts of other objects um, so the history of the modern museum and of display um, is very much interlinked with the history of photography um, these are bedfellows absolutely and I think you know some of my most favorite um, archive photographs are of you know uh, selections of the museum objects and owls in jaunty poses and that sort of thing and it is it's it's all they're all so interconnected and mm-hmm. I think that's you know it's wonderful that we're able to sort of make make this more well known to our visitors today and through more more technological developments like 3D digitization and and that yeah. sort of thing as well yeah and, and that it circles back so um to bring it up to the contemporary collecting um one example that comes to mind is a, a contemporary photographer down in um, East Nuke by the name of Sean Dooley, um, who did the series called Afterlife. Um, and what he did was he photographed um, endangered or extinct animals um, in taxidermized states in collections around Scotland, brought them out and sort of re-photographed them. Um, but I think as a historian of photography, it really does bring to mind, you know, the fact that John Adamson photographed some of the taxidermized animals um, in the St Andrews collections in the 19th century. Absolutely. I think my favourite archive image, which has to get a shout out, is Mr Potato Head, which is just fantastic. It is yeah. it, a re- reanimated potato. Um, yes, so... indeed. John Adamson <laughs> photograph. Um, yeah, I think it also kind of points to the sort of humour and... Yes mockery that some of the local townspeople are interested in it begins to kind of emerge when it becomes easier to take photographs when it's not as expensive when the chemicals aren't so difficult to get and you can begin to kind of play around a bit Um, and um, this has a long history in the 19th century if you think for example that a figure as famous as Lewis Carroll was an amateur photographer and you think of Alice, you know, 
getting smaller and growing bigger. That coming from someone who was interested in early photography and thinking about enlarging and diminishing with photography or Carol talking about going through the looking glass, itself a kind of photographic metaphor of the lens and into another world. Um, so whether it be kind of humour, potato heads, or creating a kind of alternative worlds, um, there's certainly an aspect in Victorian photography which is full of fantasy um, and make-believe and dress-up. And they're probably ideas that take us on very nicely to someone like Julia Margaret Cameron. I was just thinking that, Luke. I think that's a perfect segue into a discussion of uh, of Julia Margaret Cameron, who um, we're really lucky to have um, her photographic interpretation of uh, Tennyson's Idols of the King on display at the Wardlaw at the moment. I think, I mean, it would just be great to hear a little bit from you about about Cameron's artistic practice because I think the idea of dress up and experimentation and all of that side of things obviously speaks so well to to her artistic process. Mm, absolutely, um, you know I think Cameron is has a, a you know a very um, distinguished sort of canonical position within within. Britain in general, um, and a lot of that I think is based upon the fame of some of the people she photographed, um, but also upon um, her inventiveness, her pushing of what was possible in the studio. And she also, of course, is an important figure as a woman um, in pointing towards, you know, the, the huge contribution of Victorian women to early photography many of whom um, are forgotten, um, are only known as names, um, and this is certainly the case in the archives of St Andrews where we have small little references to very early on to Brewster saying, for example, that he was having a camera made for a Miss Douglas, you know, in the first year or two of photography, and I have no idea who Miss Douglas is, but I really wish I did. Um, so there's a lot of work to be done in sort of recuperating these histories. Um, Cameron um, is a figure for whom that has not been necessary. Um, from the very earliest of the early 20th century, she was a figure of certain reputation and fame. Um, not least, for example, that her um, grandniece was um, Virginia Woolf, um, who wrote about her. Um, so she was sort of very early taken up by the Bloomsbury Circle in the early 20th century and celebrated as well. Um, but in terms of the the studio work, what Cameron, I think, what her contribution is, um, is to suggest what, what this technology can do, um, what other things it can do other than, than to produce rather mundane photographs of middle-class men um, in a studio for a small fee having their portraits taken. So by the time that Cameron becomes a photographer in the early 1860s, um, and she becomes a photographer because she's given a camera at the age of 48. So she did not take up photography early. Um, and this was because by the time that you had had a large family and you were seen as um, having brought that family up and served your, your um, duties as a middle-class or aristocratic woman, photography was then seen, then seen as an appropriate pastime. 
So she was given a camera. Um, but very quickly, this becomes something of an obsession for her. Um, and down at her estate, um, she lived down on the Isle of Wight. Very fortunately, her ne next door neighbour effectively was Alfred Law Tennyson, the famous poet. And when Tennyson had visitors, they would effectively be dragged over to Cameron's house. You can just imagine how awkward this might have been. Exactly, kind of, sort of pulled over to have your portrait taken um, by this um, lady photographer, as they were known. Um, and so this is how, um, in many respects, Cameron gets to photograph these subjects. But what Cameron does is she really pushes what is possible for the medium technologically um, and aesthetically. So she would not pay attention to what was seen as many of the kind of rules around photography. She will experiment. She will um, use a portrait, a, a landscape camera lens in a portrait photograph. She will um, use candle light. She will use different sources of light. She will use um, very close up large format photographs of individuals' faces that create, you know, um, very close um, focal points around the eyes, for example, which quickly fade into a kind of blur around the edges. So she's experimenting with focal lenses, with different sorts of lenses, with different sorts of light sources and with dress up as well. And then she's also experimenting with photographic processes both before the photograph is actually taken and after it in, in the dark room. So she will experiment with solarization. She will play around and muck around with the glass negative in ways that that um, commercial photographies would have found and did find apart. Um, and what this does is it gives you a real sense, I think, of the messiness of photography, um, if we can put it that way, that, that it's known in some cases that you will get the fingerprints on the lens of Julie Margaret Cameron, you'll get bits of her hair stuck in the lens. Um, there's more of a sense, I think, with Cameron of it being linked to almost a bit like cooking. You know, you make a photo rather than it being a very careful chemistry. And the language with Cameron that she uses with photography changes. She talks about it being her ardour, her passion. In other words, it becomes a much more emotive technology. It's not this cool, distant technology of a scientist and of a chemist. It's a deeply felt, passionate pursuit. Um, and that what she's suggesting perhaps in the portraiture is that as a middle as a well-to-do woman for example she is able to um, create a bond with her subject that those commercial men just will not have with her in exchange and so she talks more passionately about the sort of um, inter interchange um, when it comes to her photographs of women, of Madonnas and of um, figures dressed up as Elgin marbles, for example, and all sorts of different um, biblical subjects and so on, many of these sitters came from her own household. They were like the chambermaid dressed up as a Madonna. Um, and they were local children who were sort of co-opted into the photograph. Um, so there's also, I think, um, a way in which she's breaking certain rules around um, the class structures of Victorian society. When it comes to this particular project of a relationship with Tennyson as her neighbour for the Idols of the King series of photographs, this is a, a series of um, 
photographs that accompanied Alfred Law Tennyson's poem, The Idols of the King, it, it was a perfect subject for Cameron in many cases, this sort of mythologising of the medieval world. Um, and much of this had to do, I think, in response to the Industrial Revolution, um, a kind of return among Victorian, you see this, for example, with the pre-Raphaelite artists, a nostalgia for a past, whatever that past was in medieval um, knights and so on, or the idols of the king in the case of um, Tennyson, for a realm long in the past that felt as if the industrialization and the speed in the modern world um, is sweeping away. Um, so this is sort of nostalgia for the Victorians in this past. Um, it's kind of ironic, therefore, that a, a technology which had to do so much with the modern world, photography, is being conscripted to this task of photographing um, the idols of the king from the, from the mythologies of the past in Britain. Um, but I think that gives you some sort of sense of how broad and wide Cameron's ambitions are for photography. Um, her subjects, her techniques, um, she was constantly trying to experiment with and, and uh, sort of refashion the rules around what photography could be. She's also a figure within empire. So she's born in India um, and she spends her later years in Sri Lanka. Um, so her life and her career is sort of bookended by empire. And this isn't spoken so much about, but some of her subjects have, um, in, you know, have strong imperial themes in them. Um, so there's a sense of also her photographs is within the sort of wider context of British imperial visual culture. Yeah, that's definitely not something that is spoken about as much when considering Cameron's work, certainly. But I think that it is, it's all about the time in which she was, you know, practising, I guess. That's that's a big, a big part of it. it. Strikes me that could be another, like a whole nother podcast, <laughs> which 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 it would be ideal in my mind. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think um, this is a huge theme for St Andrews, um, that it's been spoken about in some of the podcasts I know um, from previous ones about St Andrews and its position in Empire and the collections. Um, and photography is certainly caught up in and part of those histories. And we're only beginning to kind of unravel those at the moment. Um, but one thing I would say about that is that, you know, as soon as photography comes to St Andrews, it's leaving St Andrews. And that's something which I was surprised in my own research to realise is that, you know, photography is coming to St Andrews. Yes, it has a particular history here. But the other history that we're perhaps unaware of at this stage is how quickly those photographers who were trained in St Andrews go out and travel themselves to India, um, how quickly photographs of St Andrews are sent overseas. Um, so, for example, 1842 is really the year when, that summer, when St Andrews begins to successfully take photographs of St Andrews. And two years later, in 1844, there's already recorded photographs of St Andrews in Launceston in Tasmania. So photographs of St Andrews were quickly being sent around the world on the kind of, um, on, on the expatriate routes, on the kind of Scottish diaspora. And photographs of places like St Andrews were sent with family or was, were sent to family 
for kind of um, nostalgic reasons. It's a way of kind of making them feel that they're part of the kind of Scottish global diaspora and community. So you might be in Launceston, but don't forget where you came from. Um, and you still see photographs serving that purpose, of course, today, just in much more perhaps rapid technological means. Um, but, you know, I think it's some, somewhat anachronistic for us to look back and think, oh, it took so many months to get to Australia. And forget that actually for the time that was extraordinary. The photographs were a means of sending um, images of the newborn child from your brother to the other side of the world um, and making them feel, along with letters, that they were part and parcel of the family spread geographically around the world. Um, so photography certainly had a huge role in that and is perhaps one of the re one of the desires for photography among the Victorians was, was particularly to kind of take control of geographical dispersion. Um, and St Andrews is part and parcel of that. You know, St Andrews had a very, um, a very, um, what's the word I'm looking for, a very mobile community, figures coming and going all the time. Um, and that sense of the mobility of individuals, but also the mobility of photographs, um, is something perhaps that we lose sight of when a photograph in an album ends up in an archive and we think it's always been there. Well, we really can't tell it's always been there. It's quite likely that some of the photographs in St Andrews, at least some of them, were sent overseas and then came back with the family members when they returned on furlough. Um, so, indeed, that's another podcast, no doubt. <laughs> I think, actually, that's a really lovely note to end on. Just it, it makes me think of, you know, so many students or staff who come through St Andrews you know for a short number of years and they still sort of nostalgically look at pictures of St Andrews from the pier or whatever it might be it, it holds a special place for so many people doesn't it and photography and sort of memorialising your time in St Andrews is actually such an important thing for so many people who have who have been part of the community at, at any one time, you know, so it's, Absolutely. yeah. You know, and it doesn't, you know, when people come back or, you know, for graduation or parents come back for graduation, they've got plenty of photographs of St Andrews. They know there's plenty of photographs. They will still take lots of photographs, you know, because the photographing is itself part of the kind of experience of, of visiting and of being and of sort of, being nostalgic and remembering your experience. Um, and so, you know, I think it's helpful for those individuals who partake, partake of those experiences to understand that they're in a long tradition of that having taken place um, right back to the very beginnings of the medium. That's a really lovely note to end on, I think. Um, for anybody who's listening to the podcast who would love to do a bit more digging around the histories of photography or or any other um, sort of related subjects, do you have any recommendations for books or podcasts or anything for where people could go to find out more? Oh, where do I start? Um, um, in terms of St Andrews, you know, I'd obviously recommend everyone to go to the Wardlaw Museum. Um, um, and see the, the opening displays. Um, there's the 
website for special collections, um, which is always lots of fun to browse through what they have online. Um, and, um, you know, we're hoping in the future that um, the Festival for Photography will will um, re-establish itself in St Andrews, I think, which was a fantastic opportunity for bringing like-minded people together for to have fun and to enjoy like the and to bring town and gown together as well thank you so much for that <laughs> and thank you so much for joining me today it's been fascinating and yeah hopefully it, it gives people a new lens through which to view st andrews thank you very much Haley. i'm really delighted to have the opportunity um and i hope um many people out there have enjoyed the podcast fascinating conversation I've had with Luke today and I'm just struck by how relevant all of the themes in the history of photography are for us today as makers and consumers of modern photography. Join us next month for another conversation about an issue connected to our collections with another very special guest. Curiosity Conversation is brought to you by the Museums of the University of St Andrews.